Ready to get started? Okay, well, I'm, I'm ready, and, and we'll, we'll get started. Are you ready to get started? Yes. All right, here, here's the word. All right, here we go. If you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn to the book of uh, Exodus. That's the second book in the Bible. But what we want to talk about today, and we're going to jump right into it, and that is that we see in this world and in different religious circles that there are many, many attempts that people make to know God and to find out a way to live in harmony with him. There's a, there's a lot of attempts, there's a lot of trial and error, there's a lot of variation on what people think uh, God wants or likes or what they should do. The question is though, are we on right, the right track? Even though our attempts may be from a very sincere heart, it is possible that they can be misguided if we're not in connection and submission to his word. And so every attempt, I believe, is seen by God, but not all attempts to know him and to live in harmony with him are accepted. If we're off base and we're doing something that he does not desire, then he doesn't accept that. So here's the question, the, the, the million dollar question, and one we're going to dive right into. The question is this, is it possible to know God and the way he wants me to live? Is it possible to know God and to know the way that he wants me to live? And we're going to just bore down on three simple things, how, who, and why. We're in the book of Exodus, and we're in chapter number 19, and we're going to read six verses out of this chapter, and then we're going to go to the next chapter and just read three verses out of it a little bit later. So let's jump right in. We're in Exodus. We're going to read... Here in chapter number 19, verses 1 through 6. And on the first day of the third month after Israel left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, then they entered the desert of Sinai. And Israel encamped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. <clears throat> Although... The whole earth is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, the rest of chapter number 19 is somewhat of a description of how Moses goes to Mount Sinai and God speaks to him. He goes back down to the people, to the nation of Israel, and tells them what God says. And then he goes back to the mountain, and God tells him something, and tells him to go down and tell the people. And it, it, there's several times there where we see that happening. And so God is wanting to tell them, you are going to be my prized possession. You're very special to me, and I've got a plan for you, but you've got to obey me. And so the people respond to Moses and say, that's great. That's what I want. We, we want to do what God wants us to do. We're going to live for him. 
So Moses goes back and says, hey, God, the people are on board. They're putting two thumbs up. They're ready. And so God says, well, let's, let's see if they're ready. And so he says, I want you to consecrate yourself. I want you to get ready for what's going to happen. He says, I want you to wash your clothes. There were even an instruction about married couples to abstain from intimacy for a period of time. There were things that they needed to do to consecrate themselves and to get ready for what God was going to speak to them. Consecration is a very important discipline in the Christian life. And we sometimes neglect that and we neglect talking about it because it sure sounds like works, doesn't it? Y'all are tensing up on me now, aren't you? Yeah, it sounds like works. Okay, you want me to, to, to do certain things like fast and pray and read my Bible and, and get alone with God. It, it sounds like I'm trying to earn something here. And yet nothing could be really further from the truth. Consecration is something that God has called us to do. There was a time and point when Jesus and his disciples were traveling and he was teaching, performing miracles, and even casting demons out of people. And there was a man who brought a, a son to Jesus and the disciples kind of maybe intercepted that and they tried to cast the demons out of this boy and couldn't do it. And so the father is frustrated and he comes to Jesus and said, I, I brought the, my son and your disciples, your followers couldn't cast him out. And Jesus said, this kind comes only out by prayer. In other words, he's saying there's, there's got to be a readiness before this activity can be done. There's a consecration that has to happen. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he's talking about the apostle Peter. He's talking about James, all the other people that have put input into the Corinthian Christians' lives. And he says, I worked more than all of them, and yet it was not I but the grace that worked within me. He was saying there's a, there's a, a, a coalescence of grace and works. That grace and works are not enemies with one another. We receive grace and therefore we work. We receive grace, therefore in such gratitude we work hard and we consecrate ourselves to God. And God is saying, if you want to know me and live in harmony with me, live in a way that I'm pleased with, there must be a consecration. Consecration can sound like work, it can even look like works, and yet... It is not a works trying to earn salvation. But let's keep things in context. When God is saying, I want you to consecrate yourself and I want you to get ready to receive the word from me, let's keep things in context. Israel, at this point in time, has been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. That's generation after generation after generation after generation, slaves. But God raises up Moses. Moses goes, goes before Pharaoh and says, hey, let my people go. That's God's word to you. And God sends 10 supernatural plagues on Egypt. And one after the other, Pharaoh says, okay, okay, you guys can go free. That's okay. And then he changes his mind. And God says, well, I have another plague ready for you. God sends another plague. It disturbs the whole nation of Egypt. I'm sure Pharaoh had his advisors saying, hey, you need to... You, you need to let these people go. We can't handle all these frogs. We, we can't deal with this. And so, 
plague after plague. So Israel has seen all of these plagues. And then finally, Pharaoh says, okay, you're done. You're out. Let's go. And the Egyptians were so glad that they were leaving. They said, here, have this gold vase. Have some silver. Have some crystal, some china. I'm giving you grandma's china. Just please leave. So Israel actually leaves Egypt wealthy in the sense that they had these things, gold, silver, and so forth. So they're seeing God bring deliverance to them sending them out with gold and silver that they didn't earn or work for, so to speak. And then when they leave, they go and come up against the Red Sea. And now Pharaoh changes his mind again and is sending his army to bring them back. But God puts a huge pillar of fire in between Israel and the Egyptian army. And at the same time, he is parting the Red Sea. So now Israel goes through the middle of the Red Sea on dry ground, And they get over to the other side. And in that end of that process, the big ball of fire goes down. It evaporates, if you will. And now the Egyptian army says, let's go get them. And as the Egyptian army is coming through the Red Sea, the water crashes in on them and drowns them. Man, there was a party after that. They were excited. 400 years of slavery, and now it's like, man, we have been set free. Let's go for it. All right, they had tambourines. They had dancing. There was loud music. It was just incredible. But then they got to figure out how to live. Booker T. Washington wrote about this very thing when the slavery aspect of American life ended. When news of the Emancipation Proclamation came to the plantation. He writes and he says, there was a party, there was music, dancing, laughing, crying. It was exuberant. The the now freed slaves were just ecstatic. But about the time the party ended and they were going back to their houses, Booker T. Washington said there was a somberness that fell on them because now all of a sudden they realized we're responsible now for our lives. We've wanted this, but now it's here. And we've never been here before. And all of a sudden, the seriousness of the responsibility of your own life hit them. And I would imagine that's the same thing that was happening with Israel. You know, now the, the, the Pharaoh's army's gone. Now we're on the other side of the Red Sea, but now we've got to live. So they've seen the ten plagues. They've seen this big ball of fire. They've seen the Red Sea part. They've seen the Red Sea close in. And now God provides food for them in the form of manna. Six days a week, manna falls to the ground. They go and gather it up and they eat it. They run out of water. And their complaint was, okay, great. God has brought us out into this wilderness because he didn't want us to die in Egypt. He's going to kill us out here in this wilderness. (laughs) That's really what they said. And God was testing them. And so he provides water that just begins to gush forth from a rock. And it flows down through the whole camp encampment of Israel. And they, and they drink and they're nursed. And they go, oh, okay, God isn't going to kill us. He's a good God. We've, we've, we've never done that before, have we? And then they got a little tired of manna, only manna. There's only so many ways you can fix manna. So they wanted meat, God said, What I'm providing for you is not good enough? Okay, I'll give you meat. He brings quail every day, quail, flocks of quail, coveys of quail, not flocks. 
There's flocks of sheep. Quail. They had so much quail, they were tired of eating quail, but God's providing for them. In a matter of three months, those are the miracles that they not only saw, but they experienced. And so God is saying, yes, I want you to consecrate yourself to me because I've done so much for you. Which leads us to the next part, which is who? Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Let's read that. Exodus 21 says, And God spoke all these words. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In other words, he is saying to them like this. He's saying, uh, remember all that stuff about the Egyptian army? Remember all that stuff? Yeah, I'm the one that did that. I'm, I'm the one that did that. So I want to just remind you of... The things I'm getting ready to tell you are not so that you can get redemption. You've already got redemption. Now I'm going to give you some rules. You see, redemption comes before rules. Redemption before rules. Have you ever tried to go and win someone to Christ by telling them all the things that they're doing wrong? Hey, you should stop doing that and this and that and this and that. And then you should start doing this and that and this and that. It, it just doesn't work, does it? You see, when they were slaves, God said, I choose you and I redeemed you. Now that I have already redeemed you from slavery, now that I've already brought you out, now I'm going to give you some rules. I'm going to tell you how I want you to live. Rules always come after redemption. But God is not trying to um, discover anything. It's like some people say, well, God's, God's trying to put me through this so he can know what's going to happen. Let me tell you something. God already knows what's going to happen. Amen? He's not trying to discover anything. What he's saying is you guys need to focus because you need to know what's in your heart. You need to know whether you're really serious about this. You need to know what's really going on in your own life. That's why God puts us through difficulties and trials to test us to find out, are we really trusting God or are we just playing games? Are we really understanding that consecration is not a matter of earning salvation, but it is a matter of saying, God, I want to draw so close to you. I don't want anything intercepting, anything in the way of me living in close proximity to you. And so God comes along and says, look, I've already redeemed you. Aren't you glad that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. That we didn't, we didn't have anything to offer God. It's a, I, I remember years ago there was, a, there was a guy and we were praying with him and he was just wrestling with whether he wanted to receive Christ or not. We were, you know, trying to convince him, yeah, you really do. <laughs> and he wasn't sure. And he made a statement. He said, well, you know, I, I really have a lot to offer. <laughs> and I was like, no, you don't. You really don't. And sometimes we think that. We think, man, I, the Lord really wants me in his kingdom. Like, yeah. So the who. God is saying, I, I, want, I want to know how serious are you? What is happening in your life? Do you know what is happening? I want you to know what you don't know. Because God already knows. He's trying to say, are you really willing to worship me or are you going to choose something else? There was a, uh, an American author uh, who's uh, now passed away, but his name is David Foster Wallace. Certainly, I, I'm, I, I'm not here to say he was a Christian or not a Christian. There's no apparent appearance that he was a Christian. There was no 
evidence of that, but uh, that's between him and God, I guess. But David Foster Wallace wrote this. I think it's pretty insightful. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type to worship, be it JC or Allah or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some invaluable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. God is saying, are you want to worship me or are you going to worship something else? I'm the one that sets you free. I'm the one that brought you out. And he's saying, are you going to worship me? Are you going to draw close to me? Or are you going to go in another direction? He says, I'm showing you the way I want you to live. When we live in this way, we please God, but we cannot live in this way without God's help. We cannot live in this way on our own. When I was a kid, my family loved to camp. And we found this campground that was uh, about an hour away from our house. It was more toward the middle of the state of Florida. And it was a kind of a brand new campground. And, and they had about a three-acre lake there. They had a swimming area. And then the rest of it was kind of surrounded by like grassy and, and, and um, lily pads and things like that. Great for bass fishing and, and brim and bluegill and stuff like that. Alligators occasionally. We didn't, we didn't fish for those, but um, they were there occasionally. And I remember I was about 10 years old, and my father had bought a canoe. It was the biggest canoe you could get at that time, 17 feet long. So I'm 10 years old, probably weigh 90 pounds. And I decide I'm going to get up in the morning and uh, get in the boat, go to the other side of the lake, and fish. So I get up. It's still dark. I get in the boat, go to the other side of the lake, and I start fishing. I don't remember if I caught anything because what happened next was so alarming to me that I didn't really care. About this time, the sun started coming up, the wind started picking up, and it was blowing me away from where I wanted to go. It was blowing me into all of those lily pads and all that grass, and I just knew there were three alligators just waiting to eat me alive. And so I've got to get back to where I came from because first I'm hungry, and no one in my family is even looking for me, which I've gone to therapy and I'm okay now, so it's fine. (laughs) So, you know, it's a 17-foot canoe. I weigh 90 pounds, so I'm just, you know, I'm going for it. And, And as long as I've got the bow directly in line with the wind, I'm barely making progress. But I'm making progress. But one stroke too heavy on this side throws the bow this way, and then the wind would catch it, and it would just lose all. And then I'd turn it around, and then it would happen over here. And it was scary. I was using all of my... Yes, muscles. I have muscles. They're just not big. But I was using all of them to do everything I could. Some of us try to do that to please God, to live in such a way that is honorable to him and the way he wants us to live. 
Some of us are trying to earn salvation before we get it. And some are trying to earn it after we get it. It's kind of like buying a car. You go down to the car dealership, you can either hand them a check because you've already earned the money to buy the car, or you can say, I'll make payments. Either way, you're earning it. And God says you can't earn it on the beforehand or the afterhand. It's a free gift. And so sometimes we, we get busy just trying to just stroke our way to salvation or stroke our way into saying, well, I've, I'm, I'm safe, but I've got to earn it now. I've got to show God. And we're in that canoe against the wind. It was when I was about 16 or 17 years old, I went up to visit my uh, some cousins in Maryland, and I was going up to a drum major camp up there. I was in the band, and so I had to go to a camp, and so I stayed with them for a few days. It was the first experience I have ever had with a sailboat. And uh, they had this, rented this little sailboat. It's like a one- or two-man boat, and uh, I'd never done a sailboat before. And so I'm thinking, I can do this because that's the kind of kid I was, prideful. So I can do this. So I'm trying to hold, the, hold the, the rope that held to the mast, the sail, and then the rudder. And I'm trying to get all, and it, and it started working. And I was like, oh, this is cool. This is better than a canoe. And it's going great. And then all of a sudden, I'm going right for the shore. And I'm like, okay, how, how do I? And I'm trying to, everything, and I ran right into the shore. <laughs> Hit a tree or something. It was incredible. But it taught me the power of the wind. You know, in the Old and New Testament both, the, the name Holy Spirit is many times defined or described as wind. And what God is saying is this, I, I, you can know me and know how I want you to live, but you can't live that way until you catch the wind of my spirit. That's the only way you can do it. I give you the list, the Ten Commandments, I give you all, whatever, but you can't live in a way that pleases God until you get in line with the Holy Spirit. And he is blowing your sail, if you will. He's the one that's empowering your life. And sometimes we think, well, yeah, okay, I get the, you know, the canoeing and all that muscle. But, yeah, you're right. Sailing a sailboat, that's just easy. All you do is just sit there and just, just sit there. Not exactly. You still, there's adjustment. There's still movement. There's still work, if you will. To live in step, in alignment with him, and allow him to power your life. Let me ask you something. Are you allowing God to empower your life so that you can live in a way that is in harmony with God? Boy, it's frustrating when you're not. It's so frustrating to try and get along with other people when the Holy Spirit is not empowering our lives because there's a breakdown. It's hard enough to even deal with our own conscience when we're not empowered by the Holy Spirit. Moving forward in life is difficult when we're not empowered by the Holy Spirit. Aren't you thankful that Jesus said, it is so important that I go back to heaven because when I go back to heaven, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to fill you. He's going to empower you. He's going to lead you. He's going to show you the things that you're supposed to do and not do. And we, we see the connection of God's word Jesus Christ paying for our sins on the cross, and we see the power of the Holy Spirit. Then all of a sudden, we begin to understand that we can live in harmony with God by the power of His Spirit. But why does all of this take place? 
what they, the, the, to ask the question why. If we look there at the end of chapter number 20, or not actually the end, but chapter, verse number 18, Exodus 20, 18, says after Moses comes back with the Ten Commandments, this is the people's response. They said, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance. And they said to Moses, look at what they said. It says, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And this is what Moses said in verse 20. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. That's one of the weirdest statements in the Bible. He says, listen, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so you'd be afraid. Well, which one is it? There is a fear that is good and there's a fear that's bad. The fear that is bad leads us to do what is wrong, such as, let's see how good I can become. Let's see how hard I can work. I'm so fearful that I won't be good enough. And so we work at it. God says, that's not the fear I want you to have. That's a fear that involves punishment and even torment. First John tells us that. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. That's that kind of fear. But yet there is a holy fear or a godly fear in which even Proverbs talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding and knowledge, wisdom. That fear of the Lord is to say, look, I, I'm in, in such awe of the one who would come along and save me when I was unsavable. He would redeem me when I was unredeemable. He would look at me and see something that no one else sees. He would look at me and say, I have chosen you to be my most treasured, valuable possession among all the other people of the planet, over all the other nations. I'm choosing you to be my treasured, valuable people. And I had nothing to offer him. Nothing. And so our fear of the Lord is, is not that I've got to try and earn it, but our fear is that I didn't have to earn it, and now I just want to catch the wind of His Spirit so that I can live in harmony with Him and I can move with Him. So that my life is not a waste. I'm not worshiping something that's never going to satisfy. I'm worshiping the God of heaven who's called me to Himself. And how do we know that God loves us? How do, we, how do we know that he has this special place for us? It's just the cross. That's it. The cross says it all. The cross is where we, we get it. Say, wow, God, you redeemed Israel, but that was a momentary temporal redemption. It was an earthly redemption. But you have redeemed us through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for an eternal redemption. I don't have to worry about my eternity. I don't have to worry about my life. God, you are in charge because you showed that you love me by dying on the cross. I want you to know this today. Christ died on the cross for you. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life right now. Jesus Christ died on the cross because he thinks the world of you. And he is giving you and offering you an eternal redemption. He wants you to know him. And he wants you to know how to live in harmony with him. To know him is to come to him and say, God, I don't know you. Please reveal yourself to me. Please, oh God, redeem my life. That's to know him. And then to live in harmony with him is to say, Holy Spirit, 
Be the wind in this sail. Be the wind that guides me and leads me. And that's exactly what he will do. Amen?